Mets fans, prepare yourselves to get Metsmerized. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Get Metsmerized podcast presented as always by MetsmerizedOnline.com. I'm your host, Sal Manzo, alongside MMO's Michael Mayer. Mike, would you want to be the meat stuck in the middle of a Sandy <laughs> Alderson sandwich? I'm definitely not the baloney. No, more the ham guy? Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking to Alderson, with the Mets now having struck out on all three of their dream president of baseball operations candidates since we spoke last week, Mike and I will look at where the Amazons could pivot from here and why no one seems to want to run this franchise. And despite all the front office uncertainty in Queens, however, rumors have started to swirl about a potential Javi Baez and Mets extension in the near future. Is this just more hot stove gossip? Or could the Lindor Baez era about to be full steam ahead? The Mets announced that pitcher Carlos Carrasco had successful bone chip removal surgery in his throwing elbow. Mike and I discussed that and take a look at what feels like a very thin starting pitching rotation in 2022. It's been another disappointing postseason of bad umpiring, to say the least. What can baseball do to fix this continually worsening issue? Mike and I give our thoughts on that and take a look back at a different kind of postseason moment. The Andy Chavez catch from Game 7 of the 06 NLCS. And finally, Mike updates us on the Arizona Fall League and the future Mets and what they're doing. Well, Mike, things seem to be getting weirder as the Mets search for a leader continues, so let's jump right into it. No one's ever going to run this team. It's going to be Sandy Olsen forever, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's Sandy and Bryn. Joking aside, I know I put that quote out there today from a former exec talking about how no one wants to be in the Alderson sandwich with Sandy as the president of baseball ops and the GM and everything baseball oriented right now. And his son, Bryn Alderson, who was promoted to assistant GM in July is what that was referring to. And I think a lot of fans, or I shouldn't say a lot, some of the fans today saw that there was an article from the athletic today, kind of talking about the same thing. The Mets having issues hiring or getting people they want to show more interest because of kind of that nepotism type issue and it's it's not as simple as nepotism either it goes beyond that it's you have sandy alderson who has always been almost always been the guy that makes these baseball decisions so when you're going after a guy like theo epstein or a billy bean or david stearns or mike chernoff or other guys that have been mentioned in the past these guys are going to want no one above them it's the owner and them, and they make all the baseball decisions. Whether Sandy Alderson says, well, I'm not, I'll give it to you, and I'm just going to work on the business side. That's what he's saying, but that this is a guy that spent a long time in baseball making those decisions. He is used to making those decisions. I think it's not, I don't think that would be a simple transition for Alderson as some fans are making it out to be. And then Let's say that does happen and you hire president of baseball ops and he is the top guy. There's still this Alderson above you, Sandy Alderson, and Bryn Alderson below you, which there is people in the game that feel that he does have the accolades to be an assistant GM 
or of that ilk. But it's still, how are you reporting on Bryn Alderson and how he's doing his job when you're potentially reporting it to his dad? It's, it's just a weird dynamic. And let's just decide we're going to throw all of that out. That doesn't actually matter. We're still talking about Alderson and all of the hires that he's made in the last year that have been an issue. And it's not just those hires. It's how they've handled other issues, like the former minor league hitting coach, Ryan Ellis, who was kept on despite domestic violent, uh, sexual issues, mishaps. David Newhan, who uh, Newman, who is still with the organization even after that athletic article. David Cohen, uh, a lawyer in the Mets organization that is still with the organization, though they said he wasn't going to be. I mean, it's not. I think think fans are looking at it the wrong way that it's writers trying to go after the Mets and it's just more LOL Mets. I mean, the real issue here is Sandy Alderson. It's not the Mets as a whole. And unfortunately, I think the Mets are kind of stuck with him for another year. Cohen gave him a two-year contract and Cohen is the type of guy that is going to honor that contract. So kind of cut that part off of it. Where do you go now? Which is what you were talking about. There's still a chance that the Mets get a good person or person's to work in the front office. Not everyone is going to be scared away by all this stuff. And some people are just going to relish the opportunity to be the president of baseball operations for the New York Mets. Someone is going to want that role. Maybe it's someone that is a really good hire. That's possible. They're still out there. Um, I know other names that have been mentioned in the last couple of days are Scott Harris from the Giants, Peter Bendix from the Rays, Matt Arnold from the Brewers. I mean, you're talking about three of the better organizations in baseball right now. So anytime you're talking about guys from those teams, those are the teams you want to pick from right now, or a couple of the teams you want to pick from. So I personally haven't heard any of those names connected with the Mets, but I know Puma kind of suggested a couple of those names. And it's, I mean, those guys are on everyone's short list for front offices so it's certainly possible that they turn to those guys now no definitely and you know to a couple of points on to what you just said i do very much agree and it's funny that you brought that up that you know i think a lot especially the big names right talking about the big three or whatever you know stern's being an epstein i do wonder how much the last year plus all of sandy's mishaps as far as the hiring and the vetting is concerned i wonder how much that uh you know is an impact so i think that's probably in the back of all their minds um you know they're in spots now a where they're in good positions uh it's not new york where you're demanded to win at all times all hands on deck they're in smaller markets and having success there and i'm sure there's a lot of comfortability at this point to want to come in and take these expectations but then you know the other thing i know you talked about you know it's it, People think it's more the media, you know, put pitting against the Mets. Uh, I, I don't think it's as much as people think, but I, I do find it not interesting, but a little concerning that it feels like a lot of times, you know, folks get hired by the Mets now the last year or so. And then all of a sudden an article comes out about them, about something that happened, you know, years in the past that, you know, supposedly they had the story for maybe months and years, but they decided to run it as, you know, the person was hired by the Mets. So I, I would imagine with everything going on in the game now that, that folks like that, you know, that, that have big names already, maybe they don't want to, you know, put themselves out there again, because maybe they're a little worried about what's, you know, in their closet, so to speak. And I'm not, you know, saying I know anything, it's obviously speculation, but I'm sure those are factors into it. And to another point you said, as far as, you know, not getting those big fish and maybe taking some, you know, lesser names that, you know, maybe aren't quote unquote household names that, the, you know, most fans would know about, you know, the names that you mentioned were from 
those teams, the Giants, the Dodgers, the Rays, teams that, you know, for the last decade plus have been, you know, the gold standard on how to win um, in the sport. And, and you know, I, I know fans are, you know, upset because we did, you know, Mets didn't land those big fish, so to speak. It's really, it, I don't think it is that surprising because, again, being in a good spot already and then shipping off to come to the New York media and deal with all these expectations. I don't blame these guys for not wanting to move over. Um, but instead, going to, you know, I know, again, going back to Cohen saying the Mets wanted to be the Dodgers of the East Coast, taking folks from these organizations and, you know, maybe they're not, again, household names or someone that like is a, a front runner for that name, but have have put in time, maybe they're assistant GMs or something like that, but they know how to win. They know what, you know, successful organizations put in place. Let's take from those. Like you said, you know, they may be no names and, and, you know, young folks right now, but they could be someone that then could land, you know, could be running your organization for 20 years. So I wouldn't be scared about that at all. I think at this point, it kind of feels like, and tell me if I'm wrong, but they may just pivot to, you know, more looking for a general manager than a president at this point. I, I know folks say that a lot of times GMs today kind of do fill that president of baseball operations role too. So maybe that'll have something to do with it. It's a very weird dynamic. I agree with you there. I can't say that I would trust Andy Olson saying he would keep his hands out of the baseball side from what you said, you know, the pedigree that he has would be really hard to do that thing with his son again, is another, you know, wrinkle that that's odd. Who are some, some of these maybe lesser names, but folks maybe might know that, that they could pivot as like a general manager now. Yeah. I mean, like you said, and I've talked to other people in baseball, it's kind of, there's so many different structures in baseball a lot of teams structure their front office a different way and a lot of them have different titles and stuff. Maybe they do just hire a quote unquote GM that eventually ends up with the president of baseball ops title. And maybe they, he brings along, he, she brings along a assistant GM with them, or they hire someone that they would want to work with them as their assistant GM. Yeah. I mean, you, you can have that same type of structure of the president of baseball ops without actually having someone in that title. I do think if they do go that route and just hire a general manager and an assistant manager GM with them, I do think, again, it's important that this is a person that is running the baseball operation they are the top person making those decisions. I think it's very important for the Mets to let it be known that whoever they hire is going to be doing that. And that wasn't, it wasn't clear last year. I mean, going back to the Sandy Alderson thing, the assumption was when he was brought on is that he wasn't going to be involved with baseball. That wasn't really right for a couple of different reasons. A, because he actually did want to be involved in baseball operations and by default they had to be because they went through two different gms in one season that had to be um one let go and one suspended so i i think you're at a point where alderson is going to be there for this year the mets have to make it crystal clear i wouldn't make it crystal clear right now and change his title right now if i was them i think you should have changed it changed his title the first weekend after the season change his title so that he is just on the business side maybe that still doesn't make a difference to some of the candidates and how they see alderson but i i think it would have been important for them to make that um distinction and whenever they hire someone i think it's again important to make that distinction what would you say? And I, you know, I think you kind of said it, you know, it's, as far as making that distinction right now so that you're not potentially 
turning off any potential suitors or, you know, uh, potential, um, you know, candidates is, is, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, I don't see the Mets doing it, but maybe they understand what's kind of going on and they decide to do it. This isn't, I mean, for all the candidates that we're hearing that didn't want it, there's other candidates that they've talked to. There was other candidates last off season that they talked to that we didn't talk about a ton. It, there's a lot of candidates when you go through this. It's not just three or four guys that you're talking about. And all of these guys, they reach out and kind of see what they want or see if they're interested in stuff. And that that's, that's going to play in every single one of these candidates' mind is, am I the person that's making these decisions? Because if I'm being hired to be that person, this might not be my final job in baseball. I hope it's not. So on my resume, if it says I'm the guy making the one, the one making the decisions, I want to be the one making the decisions. So I think, yeah, it's an important distinction that I think they should make. And uh, I think, well, I, I still think this will drag out regardless, just because depending on how the Dodgers do, I do think they're going to want to talk to Burns and or Gomes. So I, I think it drags out to at least that anyway. Once that gets done, the playoffs are done. I mean, they're, they're up against it. You want to, because you got to start picking guys for the rule five and you not, uh, decide who you're going to non-tender and guys are going to want to start signing early with the CBA running out um, December 1st. So I think some players are going to want to sign early. So I think, once the World Series is over, I think you, you got to get this wrapped up pretty quick. Agreed. And, you know, that's kind of where I'm torn as far as it's not, not weird in the sense that teams don't hire much or interview much during the postseason because there are certain guys from, because again, a lot, you know, where you want to hire from the teams that do well, the teams are typically still playing on the postseason. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say not to panic as far as that go, when it goes. That That's pretty typical, I would say. But to your other point, we've talked about as far as with this CBA looming, Guys are going to want to get moving fast. They're going to want to sign fast. I believe that too. So, uh, you know, I, unfortunately, I agree that they are up against it. And, and you know, the, the longer they wait, unfortunately, I think, like you said, with the Dodgers, it's a good point. They're going to want to see if, you know, so then a couple of guys they could talk to there. But, you know, they're not going to want to miss out, especially the, the way last offseason was. Obviously, they traded for Lindor, but it was a weird, you know, it took them forever to, to get there, you know, uh, ducks in a row again with the front office search and ultimately didn't work out later on. We know what happened, but you know, this is uh it's, it's interesting, but it's, it's also stressful. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens even with all this uncertainty in the front office. And over the last couple of days, there've been some rumors swirling about Javi Baez and the Mets potentially, you know, uh, working on an extension soon, getting something done, wrapping him up. Have you heard anything about that? Uh, you know, it's just rumors at this point, you know, what do you got for us? I haven't heard anything from my end, but I think, I think I would have a tough time seeing that happen before you hire president of baseball ops. Like, Oh, Hey, you want to interview for the job? Well, we already used up a third of your budget for the off season or whatever the budget end it ends up being because Javi Baez is going to be as if you resign him or assign him to an extension is going to be a significant portion of the budget between, I mean, between that and giving um, qualifying offers to Syndergaard and Conforto, which makes sense to do you're already potentially like giving out quite a bit of money just for the next season without even hiring someone to run the front office so I do think that comes from the standpoint that the Mets would like to resign by us absolutely I think they would love to he played very well for them he's played very well three of the 
the last four seasons. He fits well with the Mets. Obviously, him and Lindor are great buddies, but it, it wasn't just Lindor. It seemed like he meshed well with the entire team. So the way he played to finish the season, the needs that they have, they need an infielder. Um, they need someone who's going to drive in runs, show some power, both things that he's done three out of the last four years. So I, I think Baez is a good fit. While he is going to be expensive in ter- relative terms, he's not going to be comparing him to Corey Seager or Carlos Correa. He's going to be cheaper than both of those guys. I think potentially maybe right around where Trevor Story gets. Story is a tough one. So staying away from Korea and Seager, which I think the Mets probably end up doing because both of those two guys are probably signing for $300 million And I just, I don't see the Mets giving out two $300 million contracts two off in a row. So I think that gets you into the Trevor Story or the Javi Baez and they know what they have in Baez. They just had him. They know what they have in him also because he's not going to be playing shortstop and they've seen him. He's played way more games outside of shortstop than Trevor Story has in his career. He used to kind of compare those two guys. So while I don't think it happens anytime soon, in my opinion, I do think the Mets are definitely interested there. Yeah, no. Um, and uh, a point and uh, I guess a rebuttal question to you on that. The point you made about not making a, a- a large investment, free agent investment. You don't have anyone running the team. I would say a great example of that is in the New York Jets from a couple of years ago. All you Jet fans, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> spent a boatload of money and then fired the general manager and run another coach, you know, and tried to hire a G had hire another GM after they spent all the money, made all someone else spent all the money, made all the draft picks. So I uh, I agree there to heed that. And uh, my second thing is, you know, obviously Lindor buyers are good friends. Lindor is getting a lot of money from the Mets and he's going to be here for a long time. How much do you think could there be any push there? You know, maybe these rumors are kind of coming from maybe, you know, the, the big man that's getting paid wants to keep his friend around and wants to make sure that, you know, he's here with him for the next few more years. Do you think there's any pull there on that? Or it's just like kind of all speculation. Yeah. I mean, I think when they dealt for Baez, it would be silly to think that they didn't ask Lindor his thoughts on it. Of course they did. He was given $341 million. The owner is going to ask him what he thinks about that type of player, knowing their relationship. Of course, they're going to ask. So I think Lindor's obviously made it known that he wants Baez back with the Mets, and that would make certainly make him even more comfortable than he is already. I mean, I think Lindor started hitting very well before they got Baez. I think he already showed that he's going to be fine in New York going forward. And I, I think Baez just adds another element to Lindor and to the infield. I, I mean, we watched, we watched them play for a short span, but it's hard not to get excited about what those guys could do over a four or five year span together. Um, they're fun to watch and they're productive. Absolutely. You know, moving on to an, another Met, the Mets announced recently that Carlos Carrasco uh, underwent bone chip removal surgery in his throwing elbow. Um, they said that he should, you know, be th- uh, went well and should be thrown again, you know, by I guess December for the winter. Um, can you tell us anything about that? Does this affect anything that they do now, maybe in the off season to add starting pitching? I mean, I, that was already a, a main concern that they have to make sure that they bulk up. But you know, do you do you think this changes their plans at all, or any more urgency or anything? No, I, I don't think it changes a ton. Uh, like it, it sounds, the expectation is that he's going to be in camp fine. Find it interesting that Poon tweeted out that Carrasco did tell the Mets about this issue during the season, 
So he was pitching knowingly with this issue, which again, that's not terribly uncommon. Like pitchers pitch through this type of stuff. It just stinks, obviously, for Carrasco. I mean, there wasn't any way that a guy of his caliber could have had a worse season with the Mets. I think, like we've talked about, the rotation is it's a big need, especially if you don't bring back Strowman. That's a big, that's a big hole you have to fill. That's a lot of innings. That's a lot of starts you have to fill. And um, I think there's a chance that Syndergaard comes back, that he accepts a qualifying offer. But obviously, Syndergaard, we know what type of talent he is, but he's still a wild card in the fact that he's thrown two innings in two years. So I, I think you have to get that type of bulk guy like Stroman is. You have to have that guy you know that's going to throw 150, 160 innings. I, I do think at the back end they – they do have some nice depth because you have David Peterson and McGill at the back end and Trevor Williams, if he returns that, I mean, that that's a pretty, that's a pretty good six through eight right there. That's better than a lot of teams six through eight in the rotation. So as long as you bring back or you have two starters, um, whether it's Syndergaard and Stroman or two guys like that, I, I think, yeah, the need's still there. I'm not sure that the Carrasco thing changes that much yeah you know i i think the worry with carrasco is you know just from even from the trade last year you know and him not being able to pitch until basically august and then really not pitching like you know you're accustomed to seeing that you know you got a guy that that was on the downswing cleveland knew it they got the best of the mets as far as that's concerned just you know you worry that these injuries are going to mount up on him now um and unfortunately he's not a six seven eight guy he's going to have to be a three four five guy um so that's uh you know Still concerned for me there. Hopefully he's again he can have a normalish off season and, and he's ready for spring. But I think you know it's something that I would be concerned about just from how thin the starting pitching is. And one more comment just on just free agency and I guess everything as a whole. Do you think maybe another reason why obviously the Mets won't go for like a say a Correa or a Seager and might be more opted to try and and bring back Baez maybe on a little bit of lesser deal, sweetheart deal, play with his buddy because there is that you know that mounting hole in the starting rotation and they they probably do have to try as hard as they can to bring back Stroman too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's also a point where Cohen's, I mean, no one has unlimited funds to spend on a team. And like we talked about with, you need multiple starters, you need an infielder. And a lot of the infielders we're talking about are going to be expensive. Right. And we, you still need an outfielder. Conforto, I, I'm still under the impression, unless things change, that there's a good chance that he's going to sign elsewhere. So that means you need an outfielder and you're talking like Chris Bryan or Castellanos or Chris Taylor to play the outfield. Um, there's a couple other guys. All of those guys are going to get pretty solid deals too. So there's, yeah, you have to spread some of this money around. And I mean, that that's why I would kind of think that Korea and Seager getting 300 million. And then I, I, I don't see how you do that and sign multiple pitchers right. that are definite good starters and then a starting in and then a starting outfielder too. So I think, I think it makes it tough. You kind of have to be realistic with just how many guys you think you can sign. Right. Without a doubt. And kind of pivoting off that to the teams that are still playing in the playoffs this year. Um, something that hasn't been great has been the umpiring. Uh, it's been absolutely horrendous. Uh, I think everybody saw the awful call on Wilmer Flores last week. The check swing that wasn't that they called to end the series. That was horrible. The other night, Lance Diaz or Laz Diaz uh, behind the plate in the Red Sox Astros game. Um, it's not just the postseason. We've seen it all, 
you know, overall now um, in baseball, the last few years, quality umpiring going down and just like easy things um, that these guys are not executing and doing well. Do you think something like this can now like accelerate the whole process of like the automatic strike zone or getting an actual rule for what a check swing is like putting something in the books, just, just something, any immediate change to this, because, you know, no one's perfect. We get that baseball is a sport. The human error behind it is kind of what makes it part of it, what makes it great and everything. When really easy calls, even without, you know, it, it, I guess I keep going back to that, that check swing call, especially, you know, that even in real time, you could see, you know, that it wasn't a swing and you end the series on that. What can baseball do now besides, besides, you know, throw all these guys under the bus and like makes, you know, wild changes because it's, it's hurting the product on the field and, you know, it's, it's ruining outcomes of games and that, that shouldn't be, you know, umpires shouldn't be ending series like that. So I kind of just wanted to get your thoughts on, on all this. And, and if, you know, you've heard anything now that, that things could be coming soon as far as change goes. I think, unfortunately, the check swing thing, I don't, I don't think the timeline is going to change there. Maybe you make it reviewable. I think the more you add replay, I don't know, it gets kind of messy and choppy. It already kind of is with replay. So we talk about replay with the check swing, right? Wouldn't you not be able to even have replay without a rule? So wouldn't it start by helping if there was a definitive rule in place, whether it's if the barrel goes in front of home plate? I know some people do, you know, breaking the wrists. You know, it's like a discretionary call that really shouldn't be. Um, so like, I think at the end of the day, it just comes down, like maybe they can call it the Flores rules they want. You know what I mean? I feel like at the very least there needs to be something in place. Cause I, I umpires admit it pretty freely, like even, you know, uh, training in the minor leagues and stuff like that. There's no written rule for it. It's all discretionary. So like, do you think that could at least change? Yeah. I mean, I f- feel like we're talking about pass interference, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think if you want to define it, that's never a bad thing. Why not put it in the rule book to define it? And then once you define it, like you said, then you can go in and look at it and replay if it's defined. Because yeah, it, it's tough to it's tough to go and replay and be like, well, did he? Because your definition of a check swing might be different, which is why pass interference is such a mess. Let's not go down that road. But so getting to the home plate, yeah, I mean. Automated strike zones coming. It's only a matter of time using it in the minor leagues, using it in one of the AFL parks. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think they're still working out some of the kinks. I do want to mention uh, Mets that he had a great article today that talked about specifying that the best home plate umpires just do home plate in the playoffs instead of rotating. Like, why are we, why are we rotating these guys? Why are we doing that? Why aren't we just having the best guys because they grade all the umpires on what they do behind home plate so why not have the most proficient guys from the regular season do all the home plates and all the playoff games i mean what's the point in grading them if you're not going to reward them in that aspect and what's the point i mean if we know that las diaz is a terrible home plate umpire why are we putting him behind home plate during the playoffs it it I think that is a really good point that use the strength of the umpires. If there's a really good home plate umpire, put them at home plate for the entire series or rotate them out with another home plate umpire. They swap out every game, whatever, however they decide to do that. I think that's actually a good idea. Actually agree. That's a great idea. Shout out Mets daddy. He's saving baseball. I love that. Um, <laughs> and a, another idea, it might be harsh and it maybe not able to do it. Cause you have the, you have a union and stuff like that. 
based on those performances, but relegating umpire. If you're below a certain standard, you know, in as far as the grading that they do, and it's consistent, you know, for however long a span that they come with, then you get relegated to the minors until you show your numbers improve. Send players up and down a million times, right? Guys that, you know, aren't good or whatever. Guys go up and down for the minors. Why can't we do that with umpires? I just feel like maybe a sense of urgency that these guys can understand that people don't pay to see them. They pay to see baseball. Maybe that'll make it better. I, I don't know, but it just, it, it feels like nothing changes because they, they almost know that they're not going to be reprimanded and they can, can continue to like do this. And again, you know, this it's, there's more important things in the world, I guess, but you know, when you have really the most important platform, you know, or stage in your sport and things are being decided on, you know, uh, uh, an official when they shouldn't be, that's not good. That's not how you grow. That's going back to growing the game. That's not how you grow the game either. So, you know, hopefully they can do something because uh, this is getting, you know, it's really out of control and people are, you know, not going to be watching because of it. And pivoting from this year's postseason and, and all that to uh, a postseason pass. Uh, the other day was the anniversary of game seven of the o- 06 NLCS. Andy Chavez's uh, amazing home run grab or Rob. Uh, that's all that happened in that game. <laughs> Nothing else happened after that. Um, but I just kind of wanted to talk to you about that, Mike, get kind of your thoughts on it. And, uh, you know, I kind of have a, an interesting story from that night being at the park. So, you know, we could share that. Yeah, I mean, it was cool just to see kind of like the range of emotional replies that I got on Twitter when I posted the video and like t- a lot of people talking about being at the park and just how that felt to be there. As a fan, I was I was in college at the time. I was watching in my um, apartment and in my room by myself because the people I lived with were Mets fans or baseball fans. And I remember yelling, yelling and like hitting the wall. And it's just like, holy shit, like this is amazing. It's one of the best catches I've ever seen. Then to be able to throw it to first to get the double play, it's just, it's just bonkers. And it's like well, yeah, obviously we're going to the World Series. The Mets are going to the World Series. The best play in history just happened. But no, of course, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't even want to talk about the rest of what happened. But yeah, it was cool to see the range of emotions and just how many people at the park that day and the feeling that they felt when he caught that, not just emotionally, but literally the stadium shaking. And I'm sure you can kind of attest to that. Yeah. So I was, I was in the ninth grade. I, I went with my grandfather to game seven. I got to leave football practice early that day. Uh, JV football practice. You know, my, my coaches all knew the deal that I was a huge Mets fan. I was like, listen, it's game seven, you know, I'm coming for a little while and then I'm leaving. And, uh, you know, I got to leave practice early. We'd get to Shea. We sat in left field right underneath the red section. So we were in the green. It was, that's the lows. I guess right on the, right underneath. And we were literally underneath the stanchion. So we're tucked in the left field corner underneath the stanchion. I can't see the fence, right? So that play happens. Scott Rowan hits that bomb. My mouth opens. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Don't see anything. The ball gets lost. And then about three seconds later, I see a ball come into, I believe it was Jose Valentin that the relay throw came in. And Edmonds rounding back second and getting a double play. And the whole stadium going nuts. Me and my grandfather are going insane, but we don't know what happened. 
So I looked at my grandfather. And I said, I pulled, I dragged him down the stairs. I went to the concession stand because I wanted to see the play with the television. So we ran down and saw the replay of the catch on the television in front of the concession stand at Shea. That was the craziest, craziest game I've ever been at. Um, and even more so, I believe it was the bottom of the eighth inning, bottom of the eighth, the bottom of the seventh. Andy Chavez came up with the bases loaded with two outs. And I remember looking at my, first of all, Chavez makes the catch, right? We see the replay. I looked at my grandfather. I said, we're going to the World Series. That's it. Same, same deal as you. I was like, you don't make that play and then don't win that game. That's not how Hollywood works. not how the script works. Then he comes up with the bases loaded in two outs. And you're like, oh, my God, this guy's going to get the go-ahead hit. It's tied at one. He's going to get like a two-run single. He's going to put them up. This is amazing. First pitch, seed line out to center field. That was tough. That felt like the game right there. Um, and he hit a seed. And, you know, we, we know what happened, the rest of it. Um, I, I don't like Yadier Molina. I really don't like him. And I don't like talking about how great he became after that home run. Really stinks. Um, another tidbit from that game. Once the game ended, first of all, we sat there for like 10 minutes in shock. The Cardinals are celebrating on the field. And I'm 14 year old. 14 years old and i'm like this this is not how this was supposed to go down this i feel like i'm in bizarro land we finally leave the stadium right you can hear a pin drop walking you remember the old the old ramp stairs that they had in front of shea that everyone walked down you know fifty thousand people leaving that stadium not saying a word and insult to injury it starts raining so the walk from shea stadium to the train we know that's a long walk that boardwalk connector they have felt like forever and it just started pouring you know however many tens of thousands of people just standing in the rain now waiting for the train couldn't hear a pin trap on the way home uh even the drunkest people at shea at that time everyone was dead silent and like the carrot uh, you know like the icing on the cake i guess my mom let me stay home from school like late the next morning my mom never did that mom if you're if you're listening to this went to school every day had to be a good student all that my mom felt so bad for me about that <laughs> night. She was like, listen, you stay home till, till lunch. I'll bring you at lunch today. Don't worry. That was a rough one. So I'll never forget that game. It was like, it, it's fandom in a nutshell to me. The highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows, just in a matter of a couple of innings. Yeah, that's kind of been like my defining moment as a Mets fan, unfortunately, so far in my, my young life. I'm hoping it gets better from here because the, the best game I've ever seen live is a game that my favorite team lost. So uh, that's it's pretty screwed up. But, um, you know, I actually have that. And the Chavez, the, him at the apex of his leap, I have that picture sign. It's like one of my favorite pieces, pieces of memorabilia that I have. Um, cool moment. Didn't work out. But, you know, crazy that that was 15 years ago. Went by, went by like that. And it's crazy that the Mets have had like three winning seasons since then. That, that's even more tragic, but I guess we'll get there. Pivoting off of that to, uh, as always, the, the Mets of tomorrow. Uh, the Arizona Fall League is in full swing. Uh, Mike, you know, break down what's going on. I know Brett Beatty's having a, a great Fall League so far, but, you know, fill us in on all the other Mets that are doing their thing down there in Arizona. Yeah, so Beatty won uh, Player of the Week for the first week, which obviously a pretty good sign. Also had a chance to talk to a scout that watched him and they, they were excited about him. They said that he's probably, he could be a top 20 prospect in baseball right now. They thought, so, I mean, he's obviously a guy that Mets fans are starting to get pretty excited about and uh, one to keep their eye on his spring training because he played in double a, this year, finished up in double A, playing the Arizona Fall League, which is obviously a high level. So you'll be a guy to watch in spring and kind of see where they go from there. And obviously, like it, it depends on 
what they do for free agent signings and stuff. But this is a guy that's getting pretty close to the conversation of, is he a big leaguer or how soon is he a big leaguer? Beyond him, infielder Will Moraes, which is kid's one of my favorite prospects. He's been hitting really well. He had a, he's got a 850 OPS and he's been walking a ton. Um, been playing some shortstops in second base. Very skilled defensive player and he's getting on base. So I think he's he's a guy to watch. I think you'll probably start the year in double A. Carlos Cortez, another guy, another Mets prospect that's tearing the cover off the ball. I mean, he he's got an OPS over a thousand so far in a week. Um, in the ball really hard. He's always a pretty big exit below guy. He's been leading off some for the river rafters. I mean, between those three guys, they've been playing pretty well. Uh, Hayden Singer, a catcher in the Mets system. He's been He's played about half the games, and he's played pretty well, too. Pitching staffs pitch well, too. They, they have all the guys who've shown well. Um, just today, they got three scoreless innings from Garrison Bryant, and Connor Ray pitched three innings and only gave up one run. And uh, Colin Holderman, who I mentioned last, last week, um, got the save the other day as their closer. So he's a guy to watch that throws in the high 90s. So all good stuff from the Arizona Fall League so far. Um, one other mention is that Ronnie Mauricio went into camp in the for Winter League and uh, looks like he might get a little bit of playing time this year. He actually, the uh, first week, they actually had him playing some third, or the in practice at least. He was taking some balls at third. So it'll be interesting to see if he gets any reps there. So far, he's, he's just been playing shortstop for the Mets in the minor leagues. So as we know, with Beatty, who we mentioned, and Mark Vientos, third base is pretty, pretty well covered there. But And we have Lindor at shortstop in the major leagues. So in the winter leagues, these teams don't really care about what the major league teams want. They're just going to play guys to their specifications for the most part, especially the younger guys. It, it'll still work. Maybe it works out for the Mets that they do get to see some versatility from Mauricio. I mean, the likelihood of him him ever playing significant time at shortstop for the Mets is slim to none, essentially. So um, it'll it'll be interesting to see. Hopefully he gets some playing time to see how he does there to cap off a year where he showed a ton of power in the minors. Absolutely. And that's, you know, it all sounds really promising. Um, sounds like, you know, there's a lot of big future ahead in the, in the farm system for the Mets. And I would be remiss to bring up, um, very disappointed that I saw that you weren't able to interview your boy Vientos I saw that Joe Dees took that from you, so I had to get it out there. <laughs> Joe, we're upset with you. He's uh, he's a big name stay on the pod here, so uh, hopefully you can plug us to get him get him on an episode uh, next time instead of uh, an interview for uh, the website. Yeah, it was great. Joe D uh, talked to Vientos last week. It's a great yes. interview. If you get a chance, go to Mets Marise and check it out. Vientos obviously had a monster year in the minors for the Mets, um, 25 home runs hit really well, finished off at AAA, and uh, yeah, go check out the interview that Joe D did with him over at MMO. There we go. Well, that'll do it for this week, guys. Check us out next week. Uh, we're going to have a special guest on ne next week's episode, so stay tuned for that, and until then, get mesmerized.